and I'm calling today's word inner resurrection power. As we continue in Acts chapter 11, we get to verse 19 and we see the great changes that come to the church in Jerusalem because of the persecution of the church. I'll read the verse. The believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. But things were about to change. So that time of persecution prompted an outreach of the gospel from Jerusalem into the Roman Empire. People were scattered. And when some of the Jewish and Gentile disciples travelled to Antioch and began sharing the message of Jesus with the people there, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas. And he was a, a Jew, Hellenist Jew from Cyprus. They sent him to Antioch because he knew those regions, the Greek-speaking regions. And he went to investigate what was happening out there in those areas and to provide support. Antioch was a prominent cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire, a massive city. It still is, but it's not in the Roman Empire anymore. It's in Turkey but it is quite an amazing place. It's a, still a cultural melting pot, a diverse population. And Barnabas, who was the bridge builder, he helped in bringing unity between the Jewish Christians that went out from Jerusalem and the Gentile believers in Antioch. And he was providing teaching and discipleship to the new converts. But Barnabas knew that he needed Paul to help establish and grow the church because he knew that God had given the ministry of the gospel for the Gentiles to Paul. So he took the journey of over 500 kilometres to Tarsus in Syria where Paul lived. They returned together to Antioch where they spent a year together teaching and ministering to the growing congregation and it was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus Christ were first referred to as Christians. So we come down to now verse 27, and we read about this same time as all of this was happening. There was so much that was new. The people in Jerusalem were wondering what is happening out there. And people would go and visit. And some prophets came to Antioch from Jerusalem. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up one day and, prompted by the Spirit, warned that a severe famine was about to devastate the entire country. So the disciples in Antioch decided that each of them would send whatever they could to the poorer fellow Christians in Jerusalem to help out. And they sent Barnabas and Paul to deliver the collection to the leaders in Jerusalem. So there is an act of a unifying work, and that's what Barnabas was good at. So we now move on 
to Acts chapter 12. That's where chapter 11 ends. And we come to Acts chapter 12, and we're back in Jerusalem. And that is the time when King Herod gets it into his head to go after some of the church members. He goes for some leaders, and he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw how much it raised his popularity with the Jews, he arrested Peter too. All this during Passover week, which is very significant. He had Peter thrown in jail, putting four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. He was planning a public execution of Peter after Passover. And all the time that Peter was under heavy guard in the jail, the church was praying for him fervently for his safety. So James's death, the first apostle to be martyred, was a rallying point of prayer for all the believers. It inspired their faith. They didn't give up, didn't run away. And it would have appeared to Peter that he was also ready to be executed. But Peter was imprisoned, and the chapter goes on to describe a miraculous event which highlights the unceasing intervention of God in ruling over the affairs of his church. He's the one that builds his church. He's been there with us, the church, in all the ups and downs. And he intervenes from time to time. And it's wonderful when he intervenes in history, in his supernatural way. It's always a good thing to pray for. Thank you, Lord. Intervene. Is it time to intervene and wait for the years and be open for it? Because he comes to individuals. So while Peter is in prison, sleeping, which means he had quite a peace about him, an angel of the Lord appears to him, strikes Peter on the side, wakes him up, and instructs him to get dressed and follow him. The chains fell off Peter's wrists, and the angel led him past the guards and through the locked gates. Now, just as James is laying down his life for God, is a symbol of Jesus laying down his life for us as the Passover lamb, because this was all at Passover. Peter's escape from imprisonment could be seen as a symbol of resurrection. He didn't have to die. James dies. Peter is kept alive. Jesus dies. James dies. Jesus emerges from the tomb. Peter emerges from the prison. And both of these apostles, nonetheless, were willing to fulfil to the utmost the words that Jesus left for his disciples, the word that Jesus leaves to us as disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now I'm calling today's word, as I said, inner resurrection power. The life that you find when we put aside the soul life that needs to be healed and saved in the sense that it is not able to fully understand the things of the spirit from God until there is an opening up 
of the mind and the heart to the truth and to faith. So whoever's willing to get the soul life to stand aside for that to happen will find a new life, a resurrection life in the spirit, a different way to live. So that we see there a symbol of resurrection. But it wasn't as though Peter died and came back from the dead, but it was showing us that there is a dying to self and there is a, a rising up in newness of life. It's everywhere in the pattern. And we're always being called to have a look and see what needs just to be handed over and transformed in us, in a resurrection life. Meanwhile, back at the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, the people were still praying. They're praying for Peter's safety. They're aware of the danger that he's in. So Peter follows the angel and he thinks he's experiencing a vision rather than reality. He's walking through the streets and they reach the house where the believers are praying. Peter knocks on the outer door. There's an outer door, then there's a courtyard. When he knocks on the outer door, a servant named Rhoda comes out to answer. She recognises Peter's voice, but was so overjoyed that she left him standing outside. And she rushes back to tell the others that Peter is at the door, the outside door. There's a, a wall and then there's the door. She leaves him out there. But they wouldn't believe her. They're praying for him. Their prayer is answered and they don't believe it. So they dismiss her report. You're crazy, they said. She stuck by her story, insisting. They still wouldn't believe it. And they said, it must be his angel. That was the way they used to talk. In those Old Testament, New Testament days, something strange would happen. Well, that's the angel doing that. The angel had already done the work for Peter and he wasn't going to open this door. He was going to leave Peter there. So poor Peter stands out in the street, still knocking on the door. Finally, they open up and see him. And they go wild. Peter put his hands up and calmed them down. He described how the master had been able to get him out of jail through the angel. He then said, tell James, now that's the other James, the brother of Jesus, the James that was martyred, was James the brother of John. He said, tell James and the other brothers what's happened. He leaves them and goes off to another place for safety because the Jewish leaders were after him. At daybreak, the jail is in an uproar and Herod is very upset. The guards are running around saying, where is Peter? What's happened to Peter? Herod comes and says the same thing, where have you got Peter? And they couldn't produce him and they couldn't explain why not. So Herod did what he does and executed them. Off with their heads, then fed up with Judea and the Jews, he goes for a vacation to Caesarea because he could. Peter 
now leaves the pages of the book of Acts at this point, except for one mention later in chapter 15. Because after this, this chapter now, Peter's now just bowed out, the book of Acts deals with the missionary journeys of Paul. But Peter makes a great exit, I believe. And then we move down to verse 20 in Acts chapter 12. And we see another episode of Herod, the cranky Herod. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon because of all their complaints and appeals for food supplies. Tyre and Sidon was on the coast. Their coastal cities were dependent upon Herod's inland fields in these times of famine. Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne and made an oration to them. The people knew they had to flatter him and they gave him a great ovation shouting, it's the voice of a god, not of a man. And instantly an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a disease because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Very graphic, this chapter of Acts. So we see again the unceasing intervention of God in ruling over the affairs of his church in miraculous mercy and in judgment of evil. This is always an activity that's happening. The judgment isn't always physical. The judgment is often exposing things so that there are consequences. The world judges the world, but it's actually God as well. He's, he's part of that, bringing things to judgment, to be seen for what they are. At one time, back in Gospel of Matthew, the mother of James and John had asked Jesus if her sons could sit on his right and left hand in his kingdom. And the Bible says that Peter was indignant at those two brothers for thinking that. That was James that just got martyred. They wanted to sit on his right hand. Well, their mum wanted them to sit on it. But they were pretty happy that she would have said that. Have I got two great sons for you? Look at these disciples, Jesus. Jesus said to the mother, it was not his place to decide that question. We turned to all of them, the 12 disciples, and asked them if they were willing to drink the cup of his suffering that he would drink of, speaking of his laying down his life for us on the cross. It's in Matthew chapter 20. They all said, yes, we're willing. And we read here in the book of Acts that all these years later, this would have been between 41 AD and 44 10 years perhaps or even more since Jesus died on the cross. That time when James is martyred at the feast of Passover, James finally drinks the cup of suffering that Jesus had offered him back there in Matthew. There was always a willingness. That was a pretty dramatic fulfilment of that command. Are you willing to drink the cup and James was the first martyr and it was striking, significant and it's something that we remember 
because of the drama of it. But we're all asked to drink that cup. And it doesn't have to come in such a dramatic way. It just comes in the things of life that cause us suffering. Are we willing to accept the things that are happening that seem to be afflictive, difficult? Are we willing to say, okay, this gives me cause to have a look to see what gets laid aside and what gets raised up into newness of life? That's simply what it means. It's an attitude to life. Here's the cup. He told them to drink this cup, but remember what he just said prior to that? He said, I can't give you a place of importance in the world. You want to sit on my right hand, on my left, in the kingdom, which you think is going to be on this earth. It won't be. Not yet. But he said, I'm not here to answer that question because the rulers of this world, they dominate over other people. They push them around. But it's not going to be like that with you. If anybody wants to have a place with me, significant place with me in the kingdom, let him serve. So are you willing to drink the cup? So he was offering them the pathway to spiritual authority. You don't rule over people, but you rule with God for people. And to do that, you drink the cup because there are things to get through that actually shape that willingness in us and release the power of resurrection life in us, into the atmosphere, into the hearts of other people. So we have been given the same words of Jesus that James and Peter were willing to fulfil. What they did has been immortalised in scripture. But what we do, it won't find the pages of any book, <laughs> but it'll be in God's book. It won't be worked out in such a spectacular way in our everyday lives, but it will release the same resurrection power of Jesus. And that's what we're to live with as a mindset. It's not just, huh, suffering, suffering, suffering. Yeah, I know how to spell that word. No, it's resurrection. Resurrection, I think I know how to live that word. We've been given the risen life of Jesus within us to live out from. Jesus doesn't dwell within us as a bystander. You think, oh, well, I've got Jesus in my heart. Jesus, thank you for being in my heart. Take a seat. I've got work to do, Jesus. I've got lots of exciting things in my life that I have an ambition for, and that's my work, but you can watch. No. Jesus said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm here for a reason. I want to express the beauty and strength of glorified humanity that I now have through your spiritual human self. That's what I came for. Not just to forgive sins. Not just to be a comfort. And I'll be all of that. Not just to be a guide. I'll be all of that. The Holy Spirit will be in all of that. But I've come to live in my glorified self and strength, my 
spiritual human self. I want to live through your human spirit, yourself. He wants to do that because he knows that our soulish human self can easily have the rule over us. It can choke off the fruit of the spirit in our lives, which is the love and the peace and the joy that harmonises our being with the being of God and with one another. It's a life flow, not just a concept. It's an activity. And that's what denying ourself means. It's for his sake. Jesus is saying, I would like to live. <laughs> I've got you. I've got your body. It's not only for our sake. So self-denial should not be reduced to some kind of unnecessary, self-depriving virtue signal that we can pat ourselves on the back for and get congratulations. No, we ask for our soulish life to stand aside for our spiritual life in Christ to come alive in us. And we need God's help to do that. But it is the desire of God's heart to do this for us and to do it with us. If we could just see and capture in our hearts the love story of God towards us and the words that are said about it, just try and look them up. They're in the Old Testament, prophetically talking about how it was going to be the life inside of us in the New Testament. But here's one in the New Testament in James chapter 4. And it says, Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says the spirit that he has made to dwell in us yearns jealously for us? Wow! You know what jealous means? It doesn't mean a touchy kind of irritation. I want your attention. It's not just about, it's all about me and I'm jealous. No, jealousy says, true jealousy that comes from love says, I want the best for you. And if you start picking on anything that's second or third best instead of what I've got for you, I'm going to push that out of the way and I'm going to barge in and get it because I'm jealous for you. That's jealousy. That's real. That's got power. You know you're loved. When he wants to barge in with that kind of intense affection, that's the Holy Spirit tugging. This is what he wants to happen for us. But you know it's not easy to do this on the run, in a busy life, with things to do, and our attention scattered everywhere. Can be done, but you need to, all of us, need to create a space within us to experience this reality, that intense feeling of care and love and oneness with us that God wants to live through our lives. So what we need to do is to be still and know that he is God. He is God within and he's waiting patiently for our time that we can give to him for that. Very patient. Time for our heart and mind to get to know him personally, not just read about him or hear about him in sermons. That's why we've been in the practice now for some months to set aside time after the sharing of the word 
to give him time so that we can have him come alive in us and the things of the soul get put aside, the things that cause bother, the things that need to be handed to him because they're so burdensome for us. And then there is a flow of the work of the spirit. Last week I mentioned Charles Spurgeon and it was kind of a coincidence that I happened to read some notes of Charles Spurgeon which helped me to articulate something about the repentance to life that I spoke about last week. And I saw, again, I started looking for some of the things that he'd said, not hard to find. And I was in an area where I was looking at readings, morning readings. And there's, I've got some favourites. Tineka and I have got a, a two or three favourites. But I saw Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I have a look at your reading. Charles, if I can call you that. And this is what he said. He gives it a title. Isaac went out to meditate in the fields at the eventide. Genesis 24. And then he shares with us, very admirable was his occupation. If those who spend so many hours in idle company, light reading and useless pastimes, could learn wisdom, they would find more profitable association and more interesting engagements in meditation than in the vanities which now have such charms for them. This was in 1855, didn't have Netflix. We would all know more, live nearer to God and grow in grace if we were more alone with God. Meditation chews the cud and extracts the real nutriment from the mental food gathered elsewhere. When Jesus is the theme, meditation is sweet indeed. So I'm going to play some music now and we just give you thanks, Lord, that we are living within the power of your resurrection. Let us cross the threshold of our soul into the realm of our spirit, which is joined to your spirit. And have you come alive in us today? Amen. There are many kinds of meditation that people practice in different cultures, have many, many hundreds of years and still do today. They have the objective of cutting out all of the distracting thoughts and trying to make the mind blank. But Christian meditation is not about not trying to make our mind blank. It's an act of faith with a purposeful intention. Giving thanks for being in the loving presence of God. 
and that Jesus is now powerfully at work for our good in the unseen realm. This purposeful movement of our faith gradually overrides the random emotional agitation and the distracting thoughts, the impulses of a soulish mind, they're not bad things, they're just there and they like to take up the space. They say, this is my room. I want your head, I want your heart. So many random things. And indeed, they deserve a place in our head and in our heart, no doubt about it. We've been given things to do, skills to do them with, goals to meet. But waiting on God and coming to Him, a jealous God who wants the space so that he can live and come alive in us. Our kind of meditation makes room for our spirit to be open to hearing what Jesus is going to say to our hearts and minds. He often speaks truth into our mind not always at the time you're meditating, but he places there an antenna, as it were. He creates an awareness. The truth, as, as it were, spoken by him, but we might hear it six hours later or even the next day. But a word gets spoken as you're waiting and you now have the space to hear it. You cultivate that space. And we might speak a word to our mind what our mind does, it educates the heart in that. So that that truth becomes a belief system. There comes a steady growth of faith. And over time, it results in our soul becoming more responsive to God and less reactive to everything that happens in our everyday situations. So for the rest of this time, just be there knowing what's happening. Sit there knowing that God is at work. Just one more thing. if. It's not a matter of saying to God, well, what are you doing? It's not what he's doing, it is that he's doing. Leave it to him. Then you'll know the what. Thank you, Lord. If you want to know something about yourself or know more about God, this is the time to ask. As David said in the Psalms, Search me, O God, and know me. See my anxious thoughts. Give me understanding. 
I want to know about me, God, what you know about me. You can ask that. That's the prayer that God loves to answer. Show me what you're doing, God. If you do that, you will get an answer. It may not be straight away. God will work out the time when you're ready to hear it. It won't be late either. It'll come because you're ready to hear. Ask and you receive. This is what to seek for and find. This is what God delights to give, to answer. you give yourself to do this on a daily basis that it will bring alive things in your spirit that are dormant waiting to express themselves through your soul through your personality through your decision making through your emotions through your ability to respond and not react. It's a way of life. 